0: I love the idea of, yes, Lord, send me only if I can see a rich harvest that comes from it. Yes, Lord, send me if I I know there's going to be an an impactful and visible impact that I can experience. Send me when everybody likes me. Send me when everybody's on the same page. Send me when everybody's thinking in the same way and totally unified in thought and heart. But God, please don't send me when people will disagree. Yet I love what the message tells us as we sing. Send me for the sole purpose because I love you. And because you love me first. It's what the Apostle Paul even proclaimed when he says, It is the love of Christ that compels me. It's the love of Christ that compels me to be faithful to the ministry that he has ordained for my life and for his purposes. Any other reason or any other motivation will wane and ultimately crumble if it isn't the love of Christ. And I love even as was read was from 1 John, 1 John 4 even goes on to say, we love only because he first loved us. So that was, that was rich. Thank you. I mean, it's, I could just sit on that and let it wash over me. I pray that it washed you afresh as well. You have probably heard this name before, um, but if you haven't, let me introduce to you uh, a historic figure by the name of Sam Houston. Sam Houston uh, was, had quite a legacy, actually. He accomplished quite a bit. I mean, when we think or take inventory of our lives and maybe the things we got to participate in, the things we got to accomplish, we look at Sam Houston's life and we're like, wow, he actually was kind of accomplished a lot. Sam Houston was a governor of two different states. You know, just to being the governor of one state would be kind of pretty significant in and of itself. But he was the governor of two different states, he was also a senator. He brought Texas into the Union. He was the president of the Texas Republic before it was brought into the Union. He was an honorary, uh, honorary Cherokee. So when we think of the life of Sam Houston, among many things, he accomplished quite a bit. But here's something that's even more significant about Sam Houston. One day he got saved. One day he had an encounter with Jesus and his whole horizontal reality was radically transformed. And part of that horizontal uh, transformation that he experienced was not just that he was promised or guaranteed eternal life when he died, but we see that even while he was still alive, he got saved, and so much so that he, when he started, you know, full-fledged participating in a local church context, he says to the pastor, I'm going to pay half your salary Just me, I'm gonna pay half your salary. And someone who actually knew his whereabouts and knew who he was before as well as after he came to Christ was like, why in the world would you do that? That seems ludicrous, that's crazy. And he responds in this way. He says, when I got baptized, my wallet was baptized too. In other words, every facet of my life was conformed to the Lordship." Of Jesus. Last week we talked about the use of our time. Specifically, that a healthy church member is a functioning church member, right? This morning we're going to be talking about the use of our money, the use of our possessions, the use of our stuff. Specifically, honing in on this idea that a healthy church member is a giving member. By the way, if you're new with us this morning, you might wonder, we always talk about this, right? And the answer is no. It's not something we talk about often, but as I think you'll see and as I'm going to actually even talk about at the end of my sermon, I think it's kind of unfortunate that we don't talk about it more often. After all, Jesus, the number one topic or subject that he addressed was in regard to our money and our possessions and our stuff. Now, why in the world, out of all the things that Jesus could talk about, especially, you know, the repent repent of your sins and come to faith, you know, through faith in Jesus Christ, why did Jesus spend more time, have more uh, narrative literature devoted to money and possessions? Well, very simply... Because there is a fundamental connection between our spiritual health and how we think about our money. There's a fundamental connection between our spiritual health and how we handle our money and our possessions. In fact, I think it's safe to say that our understanding of the gospel and our desire to follow Jesus is reflected in part in our giving. And I could go through a whole slew of examples. For example, in Luke chapter 19, right? We see that there's this tax collector named Zacchaeus, right? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, right? A wee little man was he. You know the the church song, right? At least I grew up singing it. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, but Zacchaeus gained a, a massively huge heart. And it all came because of an encounter with Jesus Christ. You see, he was a tax collector, which, he was, which was well known at that time to be basically a crook, a legal crook. And he robbed people like crazy and he got away with it and there's nothing that people could do about it. And then he encountered Jesus. And as a result of his encounter with Jesus, he invites Jesus over. He introduces him to all his friends. At that moment, even Jesus acknowledges, truly salvation has come to this house. And we see the transformation. We see the ripple effect of what that transformation has already begun. We see that in Zacchaeus' life, he repaid everybody he ripped off four times over. That's why Jesus is able to say, this salvation is genuine. This salvation is true. Or we see in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, right, the beginning of the church age, right? We see that we see that people are coming to faith in Jesus Christ in droves. And we see that there's a kind of a description of these believers, these, these people of the way, these people called Christians by the Roman Empire. And we see that they were kind of a peculiar people. They were people that loved each other. They were people that were unified around this person called Jesus Christ. And they were people that took care of one another. Even though the Roman Empire was to each their own, every man or woman for himself, these Christians actually cared for each other. They had all things in common. And they gave as anyone had need. Weird, weird. You see, the point that Jesus wants to address in many of his sermons is he wants us to view our money and he wants us to view our stuff, all our possessions with an eternal mindset. He wants us to care more about storing up treasures in heaven, rather here on earth. If I could encourage you, turn to your Bibles, to Matthew chapter six. Turn to your Bibles in Matthew chapter six. We have already completed the Gospel of Matthew series, and so we're not necessarily going to go back through the entire Gospel of Matthew, but you recall that in Matthew 6, this is called the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through chapter 7, Jesus' longest and first sermon. He addresses many things. In fact, he's kind of shattering paradigms with this sermon. And part of the paradigm that he's shattering or really trying to bring greater clarity to, eternal clarity to, is on our view of money and possessions. He says in Matthew 6, starting in verse 19 through 21, he says this, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves will break in and steal. Bless you. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal for where your treasure is there your heart will be also. So according to Jesus, according to Scripture, how is it that we should regard our money and possessions? What what is a biblical understanding regarding our stuff? All that we have and have gained by God. There's seven points I want to kind of mention as a way of uh, answering those questions. And just to kind of give you a little heads up, uh, these points aren't manufactured by me. They're, they're massaged by me, but they're not manufactured by me. In fact, there's a book that really summarizes everything we're going to talk about this morning. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's called The Treasure Principle by Randy Alcorn. Randy Alcorn is just a short little read, but very profound. And if you have not yet read it, I highly recommend it. It's one of those things that it's good to read every year, for the sake of evaluation, for the sake of reflection. And so really I'm kind of doing a, a summary of what Randy, among other people, have also mentioned as well. So how are we as Christians, as followers of the way, as followers of Jesus, are to regard our money and our possessions and our stuff? Truth number one, God owns everything. Everything. We could probably end the sermon right there. This is a summation point. Maybe I should have it at the end. I don't know. Knowing what I know now, maybe I should have reversed everything. But God owns everything, which means we are his, or we are stewards of his resources. In other words, what this means is that you and I are to regard our money and to regard our stuff like. Managers, like stewards, not like owners. Why? Because everything we have, everything we possess, everything in our charge actually belongs to God and is from God. Psalm 24 says this The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all its people belong to Him. And so, as managers of God's things, We are called to hold everything with kind of an open-handedness with our stuff, to be loosely, loosely gripped on our stuff, holding it, yes, but willing and looking for opportunities to give it, not as we deem fit, but as God deems fit. Because again, it all belongs to God, and so we're basically going, God, what do you want to do with your stuff? What do you want to do with your resources? But before we kind of... Conclude wrongly to going, oh man, that's kind of a Debbie Downer. All my stuff doesn't actually belong to me and I just get to use it at times. No, there's actually an incredible return when we actually hold on to our things, not tight fisted, but loosely open handed. There's an incredible return and that return is this your joy. The Bible says that when we hold on to our stuff and when we guard our money open-handedly, willing to give as the Lord calls us to give, the result or the fruit of that is lasting joy. Joy that the world cannot manufacture, but a joy that can only come by being obedient and faithful to God himself. There is joy when we open our hands up to the Lord's bidding. Hudson Saylor said it well. He says, the less I spent on myself and the more I gave to others, the fuller of happiness and blessing did my soul become. In fact, Jesus even is, pro- Jesus promises this as it's recorded in Acts chapter 20 when he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So according to Jesus, according to scripture, we see that the more generous we are, the more blessed we are. The more generous we are, the happy, happier we are. Truth number one, God owns everything and we are just stewards of his resources. But there's a second truth that we also need to understand and that is this, your heart always goes where you put God's money. Your heart always goes where you put God's money. In other words, the true affections and longings of your heart, what you truly value in this life, is largely reflected in how you spend both your time and your money. As Jesus says in Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In effect, what Jesus is actually telling us, he's saying, show me your checkbook, show me your your bank account, show me your credit card statement, show me your to-do list, show me your calendar, and I will show you what's important to you. I will show you what you truly value in life. I will show you what you truly treasure because your heart goes where you put your treasure. And as we discussed in the first point, what we can expect is joy when we open, hold on to our things open handily. We can also, under, we need to understand this, that this is just wise counsel. This is wise investing. As Randy Alcorn will say, he says, he who lays up his treasures on earth spends his life backing away from his treasures. Think about that. Visualize that for a moment. He or she who lays up treasures on earth spend their lives backing away from their treasures one day at a time. To him, death is loss. But he who lays up treasures in heaven looks forward to eternity. He's moving daily toward his treasures. To him, death is gain. In other words, he who spends his life moving away from his treasures has reason to despair. But he who spends his life moving toward his treasure has reason to rejoice. So I ask you, based on your current practices, based on your current investments, based on how you regard and use your money and possessions in time, do you have reason to rejoice Or do you have reason to despair? Third truth about our money and possessions. Heaven, not earth, is our home. That'd be another point in in sermon in and of itself. Heaven, not earth, is our home. You see, the greatest deterrent to uh, to giving in our lives is the illusion that earth is our home. That the things of this world are more important than the things of heaven. And yet, as we see in Scripture, this is not the mindset of one who is a follower of Jesus. This is not the mindset of, who, of one whose spirit is indwelling a follower of Jesus. We see in Hebrews 11, for example, all these people, it says, who are these people? All these people that are known for their faith, who were faithful to the end, even to their last breath, all these people still believed what God had promised them. They did not receive what was promised, but they saw it from a distance and they welcomed it Goes on to say they agreed that they were foreigners and nomads here on earth. I love that terminology. They knew they were nomads. They knew they were foreigners here on earth. That was their identity. Conversely, Paul actually kind of addresses or exhorts in Philippians chapter 3 people that don't have this heavenly citizenship mindset. He says in in Philippians 3, starting in verse 17, Dear brothers and sisters, pattern your lives after mine and learn from those who follow our example. For I have told you often before, and I say it again with tears in my eyes, there are many whose conduct shows they are really enemies of the cross. They are headed for destruction. Their God is their appetite. They brag about shameful things, and they think only about this life here on earth. But we are citizens of heaven, where the Lord Jesus Christ lives. And we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our Savior. You see, the idea that we would be so consumed with this life and that we would invest so much on temp- our temporary existence here on earth is what the Bible would refer to as unwise investing. Again, Matthew six nineteen. everything will eventually deteriorate. Everything will one day end up in a landfill or someone else's house. Ecclesiastes 5, Solomon says this, we all come to the end of our lives as naked and empty-handed as the day we were born. We can't take riches with us. One of the probably the best things you could do, especially if you're a parent of kids or if you're a grandparent's, of grandchildren, take them on a field trip. Two options. Take them to the dump. Go down 18th Street, or if you're more on the east side, go to Blue Mountain Refuge Center. Take them to the dump, and that is a great smelly visual of where everything eventually ends up. It starts out nice for a season, a very short season at that but it eventually becomes junk. Look at the mounds, the, the small hills of appliances. They were so new at one time. They were so nice. Or go to an estate sale. That's even better, right? You get to walk in somebody else's house that is no longer their house. And you get to look at all their valuables and all their treasures that they no longer have. And everybody else is going, five bucks, two bucks, just take it. And all of a sudden, what once people valued is all divvied up to everybody else. Or to the dump. And such is all the things we possess even now. That's why I think as Randy Alcorn encourages, as Christians as people of the way, as followers of Jesus Christ who who care more about the things of Christ more than anything else, we need to live for the dot and not for the line. We need to live for the dot and not for the line. The dot represents our life here on earth, but the line represents eternity with God. It never ends. It's a ray. This is what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 6 that we need to live in light of eternity, that we need to live and function with an eternal perspective on not just our time, but also our stuff, our possessions, our resources. We need to, in a sense, invest using our stuff that we've been granted and gifted to now, and we need to send it forward it, for God's glory. Living for the dot, and not, or excuse me, living for the line, and not for the dot that would have not have been a good one but fourthly we need to understand that giving is the only antidote to materialism excuse me giving is the only antidote to materialism Now, there's probably multiple definitions that we could refer to when it comes to materialism, but let me just summarize it or define it in this way. Materialism is the tendency to consider material possessions and physical comfort as more important, maybe even more life-giving, than one's spiritual values. Now, of course, I'm I'm willing to guess that most of us in here, maybe all of us in here would, would, would be willing to acknowledge that stuff will not bring lasting joy. We're probably willing to admit that. Stuff will not bring lasting joy. And yet, at the same time, though we may know the right thing to say, we may know what is true, at the same time, if we're honest with ourselves, isn't it common to still long for that next thing? to long for that new toy. Yes, adults have toys too. To long for that new power tool, the newer appliance, the designer clothing, the bigger and nicer house, the newer car. Again, nothing wrong with liking those things. There's nothing wrong with that at all. Stuff in and of itself is amoral. Stuff in and of itself is not bad or sinful. We should never feel guilty about having stuff. We should not feel bad about God's blessing in our life. In fact, even as James says, every good and perfect gift comes from above. So we're not decrying having nice things, having a nice house, having something nice to drive. We're not, we're not throwing that under the bus or making you feel guilty about those things. You shouldn't. You should actually go and thank you, Lord, for blessing me in this way. But the danger I'm pointing out here or kind of exposing is how easily our hearts become distracted to go after things that promise huge dividends, that promise huge returns, but have no ability to, re- to follow through with those promises. In other words, we think that if I have this, I'll be more joyful. If I have this, I'll be more content. The irony is contentment is not in what you have. It's understanding that whatever you do have, you can be at peace. So we need to understand this understanding. God is not anti-stuff. He is not anti-things at all. But he is very much pro-heart. He cares about our hearts more than us acquiring stuff. He cares that our hearts will be filled and satisfied ultimately in him above anything else. I just read a biography, a short biography, a summarized biography of St. Augustine. And uh, I was reminded again of something he's noted and saying very often. He gets quoted often for this, but it's always helpful to hear it again. St. Augustine says, you made us for yourself. Talking of God, you made us for yourself, and our hearts find no peace until they rest in Thee. So, what is the antidote to materialism? We already said it it's giving. When we view our stuff, our money, our possessions, our resources as God's stuff, it helps us to resist the propensity of our flesh to to hold on to things that don't belong to us in the first place, but instead to see our possessions and to see our money as an opportunity for good. Let me ask you, do, do you see everything you own, do you evaluate everything you own as an opportunity for good? Is it an opportunity to invest in the kingdom of god aw tozer says it well he says a base as base a thing as money often is it can be transmuted into everlasting treasure it can be converted it can be converted into food for the hungry and clothing for the poor it can be a missionary actively winning lost men to, to the light of the gospel and thus transmute itself into heavenly values. Any temporal possession can be turned into everlasting wealth. Think about that. Any temporary possession can be turned into everlasting wealth. Whatever is given in the cause of Christ is, or whatever is given to Christ is immediately touched with immortality. Whatever is given to Christ is immediately touched with immortality. So I ask, do you want to leave a lasting impact? Do you want to live a life that leaves an eternal legacy? Then give your money to God. See your possessions open-handedly. Regard everything that you have acquired in this life with open hands. With really one question, God, what do you want to do with your things? And watch God transform it for eternity. What does joyful giving look like then? What does generosity look like practically i think first we need to understand and this is our fifth truth that is not it that god prospers you not to raise your standard of living but to raise your standard of giving God prospers you not to raise your standard of living, but to raise your standard of giving. Let me ask you just, and I was actually reflecting on it early this morning, sitting in my bed, reviewing these notes, and I was really asking my own heart, when I get a bonus, what do I think about that bonus? Oh, now look what I can finally get. Oh, now I can finally go pursue this or experience that. Oh, now we can actually, again, nothing wrong with those things. That's not a wrong thought. That's not a sinful thought. But I do want to challenge the thought, as I myself am even challenged by. And the question is, when I get that raise, when I get that bonus, do I see that as an opportunity to be that much more of a blessing to others? Or do I see it as a way to kind of build my kingdom here? I believe that both implicitly as well as explicitly, God, Scripture tells us that God blesses us not so that we can build our kingdom here, but so that we can be a blessing to others. In fact, if you could think about it in this terms, on these terms, The whole idea of giving, this whole concept of giving and generosity is God's idea. You know why? Because that's who God is. God is a generous God. God is a giving God. He loves to give us good things. And so he wants his children to be like himself. He says, I love to bless. I love to lavish. I love to to surprisingly just lay in your lap blessing upon blessing and blessing upon blessing And I want you to be like me. I want you to reflect me. I want you to represent me. And so I want you to be a giver. I want you to be generous. Not out of compulsion. Not out of of guilt. But because you love to give. Because there's joy when we give. It's wise investing when when we give like this. It's just a better, more fulfilling way of life when we give like this. When we think about giving... And godliness, they really go hand in hand. Giving and godliness go hand in hand. And that's why from the very beginning, we see that God instructs his people, not if they should give, but really how they should give. He instructs them in the manner in which to give. And if you look back even in the Old Testament, right? The the Jewish people, when they were saved by God, delivered from the hands of the Egyptians, no longer slaves for hundreds of years, but now are led out into the wilderness to a land that God had promised them. He gave them a law and he established very clearly, this is how I want you to worship me. This is how I want you to relate to me as well as this is how I want you to relate to one another. And one aspect of our worship is our giving. It's called a tithe, Tithe literally means a 10% or a 10th portion, a 10th part. Tithe refers to the first fruits of of one's labor. And so that was just something that was instilled in the law. This is what you did. It wasn't wasn't a consideration. It wasn't negotiable. It was just like, this is what it means to worship God, to follow God, to be obedient to God, to be faithful to God. We give a first fruits. We give a 10th of our produce. A tenth of our income. Now, granted, if we go super strict about this, actually the Jewish people gave 23 and a third of their, of their income because they also, they, they didn't just support the Levitical priesthood, they also supported the annual festivals that they all celebrated with, as well as they also, uh, they supported uh, other aspects, uh, the, the poor, and so 23 and a third of their income was all initially, right from the start, given to all these various components, the, these aspects. And this was, again, their worship. This is how they related to God and related to one another. In fact, God even charges, in, in, charges Israel. In Malachi chapter 3, he says, hey, you're robbing me. And, and he even poses the rhetorical question, how are we robbing you, God? What have we done to rob you? And he says, because you have not been tithing, because you have not been faithful. Again, God owns everything. And we are managers. We are stewards of his things, and so we see, at least in the Old Testament, that there was a part of the Jewish worship was in their giving. Now, it somewhat begs the question right now, right? Is the mandatory tithe in the Old Testament something we are expected to follow today? Aren't we under a new covenant where we are only to give from a cheerful heart, as Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 9? Let me just say this. Yes, With a significant qualification. Are we under a new covenant? Is that, does that mean we're kind of exonerated from this 10% tithe? Yes, with a significant qualification. Nowhere in the New Testament will you see the 10% pursued, pushed, strongly encouraged. We see in 2 Corinthians 9 that Paul says God loves a cheerful giver. He wants us to, not to, to give out of compulsion, but he wants to give generously from a willing heart. But it's also interesting when you look at the law in the Old Testament that even before the law was given, there was this common pattern that everybody gave from their first fruits. We see it in the Garden of Eden. Why was Cain Why was Cain's offering rejected? And Abel's accepted. Why were they giving an offering to God in the first place at all? From their first fruits. We see that Abram himself gave 10% long before the law was even a figment in his imagination. And so giving this kind of, this tie, this, this first fruits is consistent. It's not just an Old Testament law that we've been exonerated from because of Jesus Christ But we see that 10% was something that was just a way of life for the Jewish people. The question still remains, however are we expected to give 10% of our wages today? Could I just say this like this? It seems to me that the implied question behind this question, if you're asking this question, is how much do I have to give versus how much do I get to give? You see, sometimes we're all about like, what do I need to do to make God happy? And then, and then I'm kind of free and clear, right? I'm, I'm not in the doghouse anymore. So I, I'll get my 10% and whoosh, I've done my part, right? Actually, the mentality, the mindset, the way of life for New Testament Christians is how much is God calling you to give? You see, yes, we are no longer under the Old Testament law. We are followers of Jesus who fulfilled the law. And as follower of Jesus who, 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 who fulfilled the law ultimately and therefore we fulfill the law through Christ, the question we ought to be asking ourselves is not do I need to give 10% or not, it's the question is, Lord, what have you called me to give? It's not about percentages, in other words. It's about seeing everything we have as gods. And if we are truly open-handed with our stuff, he actually may be saying 10%, I want you to give 30 30. But Lord, I don't make as much as Joe Schmo next to me. It's okay. It's my stuff. I want you to give 30 to bless this person. You see, when we get stuck on percentages, we're always usually kind of going to the bare minimum. And that's why the question we need to ask ourselves is, God, what do you want me to do with your stuff? I think sadly and ironically, the average Christian actually gives very little. And I don't want to go through all the stats right now, but um, in general, tithers usually make up about 10 and at best 25% of a church congregation. So at best, 75% of a congregation, typical congregation, doesn't tithe at all. And it's said, those stats I know are somewhat relative, that 80% of Americans usually give at most 2% of their income. So what should our giving look like? I think I just said, it really comes down to, God, what do you want me to do with your stuff? But in a most practical way, could I just say this? I think 10% is a good start. Notice I said start. 10% is a good goal as a way of accountability. And the thing is, we do need accountability goals. We do need to have goals that we're reaching, not because we're trying to outdo one another, not because our focus and our compelling motivation behind it is what other people are doing, but again, our hearts are always inclined to become stingy. Our hearts, by default, are always kind of becoming more and more self-focused. And it's only through the transformation of gospel afresh each and every day that our hearts are much more willing and free with our stuff. But left to ourselves, we become enclosed and stingy and tight-fisted with our things. Our hands are always trying to do this, and the gospel is doing this. Lord, what do you want to do with your things how can I use my money and pay it forward in a sense for kingdom purposes this just this past week, I got an email, and this isn't a way of at all bringing attention to me it's just really an opportunity to give an example. I got an email saying hey there's a a um, a young seminarian who both Pastor Tom and I got to." Get to know, we had to do training. It was a part of our training in northeast India. He lives in Nepal. We hope to one day be in Nepal. If you know the spiritual climate of Nepal, Bhutan, that whole area, it is heavily, heavily oppressed. The gospel, yes, God is doing some incredible things, but it is rough soil. And here's this young seminarian and his wife pursuing seminary, Part of a church seeking to be an outpost in the country of Nepal. But of course, COVID has been hard on everybody, not just the, in the United States, it's been hard on everybody. And support is waning and, and even opportunities. He's having trouble paying his own tuition, paying his own living expenses for he and his wife. So I get this email saying, hey, are we willing to help out in some way? And and I, as I inquired further and I talked to Dave Myers who kind of is the president of ZimZam Global and Tom, Pastor Tom and I were discussing this. Like, he's, like, he's like, hey, this, is, this, isn't, this isn't a 501C3, 501c3 transaction. This isn't like IBC, the church is helping out here. This has to be personal. So Tom and I and Dave Myers got to jump on board. I haven't told my wife this. She's in nursery so she doesn't even know but we got to pay the rest of his tuition for the entire year and his living expenses. And it was a pleasure. It was like, heck yes. I think you can say that in the pulpit. (laughs) Heck yes, I'm gonna do that. What an incredible opportunity. Oh my goodness. I can't be in Nepal right now. I'm not planting a church in Nepal right now, but guess who is? Minaj and his wife. So pray for Minaj, by the way. I can't remember his wife's name, but pray for Minaj because he's continuing his studies because he wants to bring the gospel of Jesus to his countrymen in Nepal, and we get to be a part of that. I got to be a part of that in a very small, indirect way. Whatever you put, whatever resources you put to God, whatever resources you give to Christ, God transforms that into eternal things. I'm already out of time and I have two more points. Let's do this quickly. The sixth truth is this. We have limited time to store up treasures in heaven. Let me just say this very quickly. This side of eternity, there's things we can do that we cannot do in eternity. One obvious is this. There's no leading people to Jesus Christ in heaven. That is something we are commissioned to now But when we are in heaven, when all things have come in full circle, God's redemptive purposes have been fulfilled. Jesus is not just king now, but he is recognized as king and as Lord and as God by all peoples, whether they believed in this life or not. There's some things we cannot do. And some of that even has to do with our giving. We have a limited window in storing up our treasures in heaven. although what Matthew Henry says, he says, "It ought to be the business of every day to prepare for our last day. It ought to be the business of our day to prepare for our last day." I'm reminded of that, uh, that movie scene in Schindler's List, right? I've always been compelled and convicted by it when, when Schindler's at the very end, you know, and he's having to leave. He has to, he has to run now too. All the, the Nazis are running away. He's technically a Nazi, even though he was very friendly to the Jews. He's saving as many Jews as he can covertly. He's basically, work, he's basically working behind the scenes. And then there's that scene where he's, he's, all the people that he employed, all the Jewish people he employed for his ammunition his, uh, his ammunition's, uh, manufacturing plant and they were even making dead ammo in that manufacturing. But it was crazy. There's all kinds of stories associated with it. But he's, he pulls out his gold pen and he says, I could have saved two more Jews with this. He says, he looks at the car and he says, I could have sold this and saved 10 more Jews with this. Again, nothing wrong with having a car, nothing wrong with having a gold pen. But when you see things in light of eternity, when you see the power that, an inanimate object can have in the salvation of souls. It put things in perspective, doesn't it? How might God use your resources, your possessions, your bank account for his glory? We have a limited window. Seventh and finally. Giving should be a joyful topic or conversation, not a topic to shy away from. I think it's always kind of interesting when we think about giving, you know, we all love to boast of our experiences, right? It's what social media is full of, right? Do you want to know what I ate? Let me just tell you. Do you want to know what I did? Pay attention to me. Do you want to know how amazing my life is? Do you want to know how, how much of a giver I am? Whoa, wait, hold on a second. Do you know how much money I give away? Now some people do like to boast of those things, but in general, usually we don't like to talk about it's kind of hush hush when it comes to our giving. It's hush hush when it comes to our tithing. It's hush hush when we think about how generous I am. Why is that? Could it be that maybe we're not as generous as we wish we were? Or as generous as we ought to be. And this isn't a guilt trip. I think this is a discipleship moment. I think giving and our generosity ought to be something we talk about casually, regularly. After all, it doesn't Hebrews ten say, "Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and to good works." When we talk about our money and we are kind of more open with the money, isn't this an opportunity to help one another understand and learn how to give? You know how I learned to give? Because I saw my mom and dad do it. Even when my dad was jobless. I've shared it before, but my dad, was out of, my dad was out of work for six months. People were bringing us groceries. Somehow, they always wrote a check every week. I don't know what the amount was, but they were faithful. They don't even know that I even saw that. But I saw And it impacted me even to this day. Some of our greatest discipleship moments have less to do with what we convey verbally, but more how we live faithfully in front of our children, in front of those around us. Perhaps we can actually talk more openly about this idea This topic of giving and generosity. Perhaps we can stir our generosity muscles up in one another. And I know some of you are incredible givers. I know some of you are, this is just kind of like resonating with everything you already do. And I love that. But for some of us, we need this nudge, right? We need this healthy uh, kick in the keister. Again, there's so many points I could make, but I think you get the point. (laughs) What was the point? (laughs) The point is this. A healthy church member is a giving member because there's a fundamental connection between our spiritual lives and how we think about and how we handle our stuff. So let me ask you as a way of closing. What kingdom are you living for? What kingdom are you living for, honestly? Could you say, honestly, that you are more consumed with the kingdom of heaven than the kingdom of earth? The fact is, Jesus gave everything to us, did he not? Jesus had a Heavenly mindset to when he went to the cross. We see in Hebrews that it says, "Who the joy for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame." How in the world was Jesus able to have joy when he was going to the cross? Because he knew what the cross would accomplish. Because he had you in mind because he knew you, because he knew his faithfulness would result in brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, filling his kingdom. The cross meant life for you and for me. Jesus went throughout his ministry with an eternal mindset, both in his successes as well as his sacrifices. And he desires that we have the same. Heavenly Father, we just give you thanks even now. Father, there's one thing we can conclude among many is that you are a generous God. You're a God who is good and you love to give us good things. You love to lavish us with good things. Everything we have is from you. What do we have that we have not received by you? Paul asked. And then, Father, you beckon us, you invite us to reflect you by being givers as well. I pray that, Father, we as a, as a people, we as a church, as brothers and sisters in, in Christ, as sons and daughters of your kingdom, I pray that we would see and regard and exercise in a way all our stuff, all our money, all our possessions, everything we have with a mindset that says, God, what do you want us to do with your things? May we be a faithful conduit of your blessing. May we live for the line and not for the dot. May we live with an eternal mindset, even now, for your glory and to make much of you, Jesus. We ask these things in your wonderful and holy name. Amen.